Well, with that being said, if you have your Bibles or a device with a Bible app on it, grab those things. Let's go to Matthew chapter 1 together. Matthew chapter 1. Today we're starting a brand new series called Do You See What I See? And throughout the month of December, we're going to be looking at the stories of several different people present when Jesus first came into the world. Uh, People who saw Jesus very differently. And we're going to use their stories to ask and answer the question, what do we see when we see Jesus? So to get us going, here's a question for you. If you were God, and I know that's a really dangerous way to start a question, but just stay with me. Look, if you were God and you were sending your one and only son into the world on a rescue mission. And that's why Jesus came, right? I mean, it's amazing to think that 2,000 years ago, Jesus came into this world as a missionary to seek and save lost people. So if you were God sending your son into the world on a rescue mission as a newborn baby, who would you send him to? Who would you trust to care for him, raise him, provide for him? I'm sure if we were honest, several of us in the room, we might uh, say something like a a ruler, a powerful world leader. That's who I'd send my son to, or or maybe a long-time married couple, uh, two people who seem to have life figured out, they have it all together. At the very least, we'd probably pick the nice family with secure jobs, decent home, white picket fence out front, right? What's crazy is that God chose none of those people. He decided to send his one and only son to two broke unmarried teenagers. Now, can I tell you why I love this? Two reasons. One, it reminds us that God loves to use ordinary people for extraordinary things. That's good news, isn't it? That God isn't looking for the person who has it all together. And and a lot of us, again, that's really good news for us because let's be honest, we don't have it all together, do we? If you say you do, you're lying and you're in church, so come on, like get with the program here. None of us have it all together. God loves to use ordinary people like us for extraordinary things, and here's why. Because when he uses us, he gets all the credit. It's beautiful. The second reason I love the fact that, that he sent Jesus to this teenage couple was this. It was a display of his grace. It's amazing to think that God entrusted his one and only son to two people that you would never expect him to entrust his son to. This is huge. I mean, we live in a world in which many people think that, that God only engages in relationship with those who do have it all together, who, who meet this laundry list of external standards and expectations. Well, this young couple reminds us that God in his grace willingly through Jesus enters into relationship with the most broken down, jacked up, hopeless, imperfect people he can find. People like you, people like me. So let's go to the Bible together. I want to show you what what the Bible has to say about this young couple that God sent his son to. Matthew chapter one, we're going to start reading in verse 18. If you don't have your Bible with you, you can follow along with me on the screen. Here's what it says. Matthew one, verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. So here's what we just read. Uh, Mary and Joseph, they're this uh, young teenage couple, as I said, they're, they're betrothed, which means they are legally engaged to be married. Legal engagement or betrothal during this time, you could only call it off by divorce. Uh, also, we read that Joseph and Mary, they, they hadn't come together yet. You know what that means, right? The two flesh had not become one, if you will. And Mary finds out 
She's pregnant. Now, how in the world does this happen? Well, if we go to Luke chapter 1, we find more detail on how all this went down in verses 26 through 38. So if you want to go there with me, uh, just flip over to Luke 1. We're not going to read all these verses together, so you can do that on your own time. But I do want to show you how this went down. All right, so check this out with me, if you will. First, Gabriel announces. So God sends an angel named Gabriel to Mary And he announces to Mary, Mary, you have found favor in the sight of God. God picked you. And you're going to have a baby. And this isn't just any baby. This baby is God's own son. And he's coming to this world to establish an eternal kingdom to which there will be no end. Well, next Mary questions, naturally. She says back to Gabriel, "Uh, don't really understand. How, How did this happen I've always been told that step number one in getting pregnant is sleeping with a dude, and I haven't done that yet. I'm a virgin. And so Gabriel says back to Mary uh, with clarification, Mary, God's going to do this. So he clarifies for her. I know it doesn't make sense, but here's what's going to happen. The Holy Spirit's going to come upon you, and you are going to conceive a son supernaturally. Mary, nothing is impossible with God. Now, can we just stop? and consider the thoughts and the questions that were probably running through Mary's mind in this moment. I mean, think about this. Women in the room, would you go there with me for just a moment? Think about this. Mary, she's somewhere in the 14 to 16 age range. She's engaged to be married. Women, if you're anything like, uh, if, you, if you were anything like my four-year-old daughter is, you've been dreaming about getting married since you were a little girl. It's crazy. My daughter, she will put on dresses and pretend that it's her wedding day at times. It's unbelievable. So women, if that's you, you know, you've been dreaming about it all your life. You found Mr. Right. He put a ring on it. And then you had a one track mind, didn't you? Wedding day, wedding day, wedding day. This was Mary. She's 14, 15, 16 years old thinking about wedding day. And then she finds out she's pregnant. She's probably wondering how in the world Uh, am I going to tell people in this community and and what are they going to think about me? You see, in Mary's day, culturally, fornication, which is that big F word that just means you're sleeping with somebody you're not married to, it was highly frowned upon. It was not culturally acceptable like it is in our society today. She's probably also wondering, how in the world am I going to tell Joseph? How how am I going to go sit down with the man I love and, and tell him that I'm pregnant with a baby that is not his? Is he going to believe me? Is he going to leave me? Is he going to think that I committed adultery? During this time, adultery was punishable by death under the Mosaic law. So she may have also been wondering, is Joseph going to kill me? But here's what I love. In spite of all of her fears and all of her questions, Mary surrenders. In verse 38, she says back to Gabriel, behold, I am a servant of the Lord. Let it be done to me according to your word. I love it. In spite of everything probably running through her mind, Mary is unwavering in her trust in God. If that's what God wants to do in and through my life, count me in. Next, Elizabeth affirms. So Mary, she goes to her cousin's house. Uh, That's Elizabeth. And Elizabeth was also pregnant at the same time. She was pregnant with a guy that we would later come to know as John the Baptist, the forerunner of Jesus Christ, the one that God sent into the world to prepare people for Jesus' coming. And so Mary, she walks through the front door of Elizabeth's house, and the Bible says John the Baptist leaps inside of her stomach. 
And filled with the Holy Spirit, Elizabeth says to Mary, blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. You see, she was just affirming for Mary that God was doing something God-sized in her life. And then finally, Mary worships. In Luke 1, verses 49 through 55, we find this beautiful song of praise called the Magnificat. It's, it's uh, Mary worshiping God for all that he's done, for all that he's doing. And I want us to read this together because I, I want you to see it and hear it. Look with me if you have your Bibles open. Luke 1, starting in verse 46. And Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord. My soul rejoices in God, my Savior, for he's looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. So Mary's just praising God. Thank you, thank you for picking me. Thank you for looking on a humble nobody like me. God, I don't know why you picked me, but God, I'm praising you for it. And then she keeps singing, keeps worshiping. And in his mercy, and his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown great strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. So Mary, as she's praising God, her mind's going back to the Old Testament. In the Old Testament scriptures, God promised his people, the nation of Israel, over 350 times to send a savior, a Messiah, into the world one day. Someone who would save them from their sins and restore them back to God. And Mary is praising God that he's here. He's finally here. And God, because he's here, all these people who are high and mighty and proud and, and thinking they're in charge, they're going to be brought low and they're going to be reminded that the kingdom ultimately belongs to you. God, he's here. Thank you for coming through on your promises to us. This great song of praise, if you're taking notes, you can write this down, lets us know that when Mary saw Jesus, all she saw was blessing. Now, I want us to go back to Matthew 1 together. I want to show you Joseph's response. Matthew 1, verse 19, here's what we read. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Now, we have no record of the conversation that took place between Joseph and Mary, but we can just imagine how it went down, right? I mean, imagine, I, I can hear Mary, see Mary coming into Joseph and saying to him, uh, Joseph, we need to talk. Men in the room, you know that when your wife or your girl drops that line on you, it is never good news. Put your seatbelt on, it's about to get real, right? We need to talk. And so she proceeds to tell Joseph, Joseph, I, I'm pregnant. And of course, it's not your baby. But Joseph, don't get mad at me. Um, I, I didn't sleep with anybody else. This is not another man's baby. Uh, Joseph, God did this. Now, men in the room, would you just go there with me for a minute? Put yourself in his shoes. What would be going through your mind if that was the conversation you were having with your girl? You'd probably be wondering, one, if she forgot to take her meds that day or what she smoked before coming into talking to you, Right? I mean, at the very least, you would probably be sitting there wondering, why is this woman lying so boldly straight to my face? 
Nobody gets pregnant by God. Are you kidding me? It's ridiculous. But instead of killing Mary, which would have been his right to do so under the law, instead of publicly shaming her, which he could have done, because he was a good and a righteous man, Joseph just decides to divorce her quietly. His decision to divorce Mary lets us know that unlike Mary, at first, Joseph saw Jesus not as blessing, but as burden. How about you? How about you? When you see Jesus, what do you see? Do you see blessing or do you see burden? I'll be honest with you this morning and tell you uh, that for a lot of years in my Christian life, I saw Jesus as nothing but burden. 14 years old, I prayed beside my bed one night with my dad to put my faith in Jesus Christ as my Savior, mainly because I didn't want to go to hell. I heard that hell was hot and it was forever and I didn't want to go there, and so I prayed this prayer. I mean, in my mind, that was all Christianity was. I pray a prayer to stay out of hell, and then I try really hard to be a good person. And because that was my view of Jesus and Christianity, uh, this vicious cycle set root in my life. It just started happening over and over again, and here was the cycle. Uh, I would do really good for a while at all things churchy and spiritual I'd pray, I'd read my Bible, I'd go to church, I'd, I'd serve, I wouldn't watch those rated R movies, cuss, drink, smoke, run with all the wrong people, right? I'd do well for a while, and then there'd come a point where I'd start slipping. My Bible would start to collect dust, I wouldn't pray in weeks, I'd be bored to tears going to church, wouldn't really want to be there. Watch those movies, use those words, hang out with those people. And then finally, usually after like a message uh, I heard my youth pastor preach or, or after a camp I'd go to, I would come back to God with my tail between my legs, feeling so guilty, so condemned, promising God I was going to do better. God, I'm going to make it up to you. I'm, I'm so sorry for how I've been living my life. God, you can count on me. I'm going to turn it around. And then for a while, I'd do really well. And then I'd start to slip off, and then I'd fall back into guilt and condemnation. It was just a cycle that went on year after year after year in my life. I was that guy as a teenager. I remember this vividly. Um, I, I would read that scripture that, that Jesus, uh, or we find in Matthew 11, it's from Jesus, him teaching. And he says this in Matthew 11, verses 28 through 30. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon me, learn from me. Uh, I'm gentle, I'm lowly in heart. You'll find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. As a teenager, I'd read that and I would say, garbage. No. Jesus, I don't have any rest in you. Your yoke is hard. Your burden is heavy. Your demands and your expectations are too much for me. And at 19 years old, I was this close to being done with God and the church. I was ready to throw in the towel. I was sick of feeling beat down and guilty and condemned all the time. I was tired of wondering if I was doing enough to keep God happy and appeased. And then I came to a realization. It was like a light bulb went off for me, early 20s. I realized that the reason I felt so tired was not because of demands that Jesus was placing upon me, but because of demands that I was unnecessarily placing upon myself. Please don't miss this. I discovered, I discovered that I was not walking in relationship with Jesus. I was practicing religion in the name of Jesus. 
Huge difference. Here's the difference. Religion, if you're taking notes, you can write it down. Religion is all about what you can do for God. And when you do well, you tend to become proud and arrogant and you look down on those people who aren't doing as well as you. I've read my Bible, I've prayed, I've been in church, I'm giving, I'm serving. God, look at all I'm doing for you. But when you fall off and you're not doing so well, you're in despair. You're living a life of guilt, shame, condemnation, always wondering how does God feel about me. Religion is all about what you can do for God. Look, Christianity is about what God has done for you. It's about you recognizing and remembering day after day that Jesus Christ has done all the work necessary for you to be loved and accepted by God. There is nothing left for you to do but rest. Praise God. If you're taking notes, write this down. Religion makes you tired. Jesus gives you rest. Religion makes you tired. Jesus gives you rest. Can I just ask you this today? Are you tired? I wonder how many of us are tired. Tired of doing church. Tired of serving. Tired of giving. Trying to do the right thing all the time. We're tired of trying to live up to to a certain standard we think we need to live up to to be loved and accepted by God. Are you tired? If you are, may I suggest that your problem is what my problem was. You are not walking in the great blessing, in relationship with the, with the great blessing who is Jesus. Instead, all you're doing is practicing religion in the name of Jesus. And I'm going to prove it to you, all right? Uh, Ephesians chapter 1. If you want to go there in your Bibles with me, you can. Ephesians chapter 1. This is the Apostle Paul writing to the church at Ephesus. Here's what he says. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. A lot of blessing going on in verse 3. Here's all Paul's saying. He's saying that if we're in Jesus Christ, if we have trusted in his life, death, and resurrection, if he is our Savior, God the Father has blessed us with an abundance of spiritual blessings, And then Paul goes on in the next several verses to unpack for us those spiritual blessings. And and he mentions eight specifically. I'm going to show them to you. Read that passage in your own time this week, but here they are. First, he tells us that in Christ we've been chosen. That before the foundation of the world, God picked us. That he decided to make us, those of us who know Christ, holy and blameless in his sight. And why? So that we could be loved by him so that we could walk in relationship with him, so that we could live in eternity with him. Secondly, Paul tells us that in Christ, we've been adopted. And he actually says it this way. He says, in love, God predestined us to become sons and daughters. So again, the idea here is this, God initiated. Think about how adoption works. Uh, the kid who needs to be adopted doesn't go to the adoption agency and say to them, hey, I'm here to pick a mom and dad, right? No, instead, a mother and father go to the adoption agency and they say, uh, we're here to pick a kid. We want to adopt a child into our family, into our home. The parents initiate. Can I just tell you the same is true with God? He initiated your adoption into his family. Why? Out of his great love for you. When I read that this past week, I started thinking about the links to which we will go at times as parents. If you're not a parent, you'll get this one day. But the links to which we'll go as parents at times to express or prove our love to our kids. I'll give you an example. About a year and a half ago, we took my daughter, Rowan, uh, who's four years old right now, to the fair. And I don't know why we did this, but we let her play a game. uh, And the prize was a goldfish. 
And so we went home with a goldfish from the fair. That's not the kind of goldfish you want, but we took it home, got it home, put it in a little bowl, kept it alive for a few days, and then uh, my wife's aunt gave her this small little tank for us to put the goldfish in. Well, we put it in there, and the goldfish did awesome for a long time, but it started getting bigger, and I could not keep that little tank cleaned out quickly enough, so I decided to do some research. You know what I found? I don't know if you know this. Goldfish are the dirtiest fish you can own as a pet. Did you know that? They produce more waste than any other fish. I also found out that for a single goldfish, you need a minimum of a 10-gallon tank. So when I found that out, I read that, I immediately started asking myself, how do I talk my daughter into getting rid of the fish? You know, I went to her, hey, I hear toilet bowl heaven is awesome for fish. You want to send him there? She was having none of it, none of it. And so here's what I did. I went to the pet store, and this was a Saturday. I'll never forget. I went to the pet store. I bought a 10-gallon tank, the whole setup, rocks, the decorations, the pump, the filters. I spent close to $100 on this stupid fish tank. Get it home, set it up, get everything ready, put Mr. Goldfish in there. Before we go to bed that night, I wake up Sunday morning, and Mr. Goldfish is floating belly up at the top of the tank. I had to preach after that. You know how prayed up I had to get after I found that goldfish floating in the top of that tank dead? Unreal. Why would I go through all that trouble? Why? Why, why would I I'd do that for my daughter? Because I love her more than life itself. And out of my great love for her as her dad, I'm willing to do things for her at times that make no sense, that defy reason, and the same is true when it comes to God and us. What great love that our Father in Jesus would become a man so that we as men and women could become loved, adopted sons and daughters of God. Amazing. Fourth, in Christ we're redeemed. This word redeem means to buy back. God paid the highest price to buy us back to himself. He paid for us with the life, death, and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. I mean, think about this. At the cross, He he put his son there and crushed him under the weight of our sin in order to buy us back to him. That's love. Fifth, in Jesus, we are forgiven. The idea is this, that all of our sin debt has been canceled, past, present, and future. So the sins that you committed 10 years ago in Christ, forgiven. The sin you're you're committing today in Christ, forgiven. The sin you're going to commit 10 years from now in Christ, already forgiven. And I know that's hard for some of us to get. Like you're probably thinking, some of you, James, you're telling me that 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 stuff I did 10 years ago, I don't need to keep working for, I don't need to make it up to God. I mean, surely he couldn't forgive me. Cancel, done, paid for. James, you're telling me that one big thing that I I really messed up a few years ago that, that God could look past that. He doesn't look past sin. He punished Jesus in your place for that sin. Canceled, forgiven. 10 years from now, James, you're telling me if I, if I walk away, if I stray at all, that I don't need to work hard to kind of make it all up. Forgiven in Jesus, your debt has been canceled. It's all been forgiven. Six, in Christ, we are directed. Uh, Paul says in verse nine that God makes known to us as his sons and daughters the mystery of his will. The idea is this, that as we seek Jesus, as we follow him, that God directs us and he guides us and he leads us in the direction we should go. He does it through his word. He does it through his spirit. God never hides his plans and purposes for our lives from us. 
If, uh, if you're somebody in the room going, what, what does God want? What's God's will for my life? Are you walking with Jesus? Are you loving him? Are you following him? If you are, God will make it known to you. Uh, seven, we're heirs. Paul tells us in verse 11 that we've received an inheritance through Jesus. The idea is this, that in the kingdom of God, as sons and daughters of God, all that belongs to our father belongs to us. Isn't that amazing? We're going to show up in God's eternal kingdom one day, not as guests, but as loved children. And everything that belongs to our dad becomes ours. And we're going to rule with Jesus for the rest of eternity over all that God has given us. Incredible. And lastly, eighth, uh, in Christ we've been sealed. Paul tells us in verses 13 and 14 that God seals us the moment we put faith in Jesus Christ with the Holy Spirit. It's basically his stamp on our lives. That person is mine. And the Holy Spirit protects and preserves our life until the moment we finally see Jesus face to face. And until that day, he works on us and he changes us and transforms us to make us more and more and more like Jesus. All this is ours because of him. Now, look, don't miss it. Here's the mistake we often make. As followers of Jesus, what we'll often do is this. Instead of resting in Jesus and believing that all these spiritual blessings belong to us because of him, we will work for these spiritual blessings in order to find a sense of peace and rest. Here's practically what it sounds like. Maybe if I go to church more, uh, God will love me more. Maybe if I read my Bible more, God will accept me more. Maybe if I work a little harder and, and do more stuff, spiritual stuff, God will forgive all those sins I've done. Maybe he'll actually show me what he wants to do with my life. Maybe if I'm a really good person, God will give me some of his stuff. We work and we work and we work because we want to find rest and we don't realize that the whole time all this stuff already belongs to us. That'd be like me paying you to come hang my Christmas lights because I hate hanging Christmas lights. If there's anything in God's creation that can test a man's patience, it is hanging Christmas lights. Can I get an amen from somebody? Thank you. I'm not the only one. Let's say I pay you a hundred bucks to hang, to hang my Christmas lights. You do it and I pay you and then you come back the next day and you say, James, I'm, I'm here to hang your Christmas lights. And I say, uh, you did it yesterday. Work's done. You've already been rewarded. I gave you your money. There's nothing left to do. Ah, no, I, I just still feel like I need to show back up and, and work more. You, you don't need to work more. You've already done the work. It's accomplished, and you've been rewarded. That's how some of us walk through life spiritually. Jesus has done all the work so that these spiritual blessings can become ours, and we can rest. Some of us in the room are still working tirelessly for things that already belong to us. Following Jesus is not about doing more for the sake of gaining more. It's about resting in the work that's already been done on our behalf by him. If you're tired in the room, how in the world do you get there? How do you get to that place of rest? Like how do you move from seeing Jesus as burden to blessing? How do you go from religion to resting in Christ? Well, I'm going to show you the answer. It's really simple. To see Jesus as the great blessing that he is, here, here's what has to happen. Supernatural revelation is required. And I know for some of us that might sound really weird, supernatural revelation. What do you mean, James? But here's what I mean. You can't understand who Jesus is and all that he's done for you by intellectually reasoning yourself into belief. Nor can I talk you into it. Like, all I'm doing here today is giving you information. 
In order to see Jesus as blessing instead of burden, God has to provide you revelation. He has to speak to you and give you eyes to see supernaturally who Christ is, what he's done, and what belongs to you in him. It's what he did for Mary. He sent an angel to her to make the announcement. It's what he did for Joseph. If you still have your Bibles open, uh, let's finish reading this really quickly. Matthew 1, verse 20. But as Joseph considered these things, all that Mary was telling him, all the divorce stuff, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And when Joseph woke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. So the angel comes to Joseph, and he he says, Joseph, this baby that, that your girl's pregnant with, It's God in the flesh. He's coming to the world to save people from their sins. Joseph, your girl is the one the prophet Isaiah wrote about 700 years ago. Isaiah 7, 14. Behold, and a virgin will conceive and bear a son. Joseph, that's your woman. You take her and you adopt this boy as your own son and you raise him. It's God with us. No one could make Joseph believe that story except for God himself. And the same is true for us today. Here's the difference. God doesn't send angels to announce that to us today to provide supernatural revelation. That's why we have the Holy Spirit. In John chapter 16, Jesus tells us that when the Holy Spirit would come into the world, he would speak to men and women about him. He would reveal Jesus, glorify Jesus convict men and women of their sin and of their need for Jesus, the Savior of the world. And I just want to tell you, I've been praying all week leading up to today, that the Holy Spirit of God would provide much needed revelation for some of us sitting in this room. That the Holy Spirit would speak to our hearts and move us from religion to rest. Move us from seeing Jesus as burden to seeing Jesus as blessing. And as we get ready to close our time together, we're going to pray and and we're going to ask the Holy Spirit to give us that kind of revelation right now in this moment. So I just want to invite you all over the room to bow your heads. I'm going to go ahead and invite our prayer team to come to the front of the room to get in their places. So I truly believe that there are people sitting in this room today who are tired who are not resting in Jesus, but who are practicing religion in his name. I believe there are people in this room right now who who would say they know Jesus, but they still see Jesus as a burden, not as a blessing. I also believe that there are people who walk in this room today without a relationship with Jesus. And maybe the reason you don't have a relationship with Jesus is because your view of him is burden. Well, if I give my life to Jesus, it means rules and expectations and demands and and I lose stuff and I'm going to be miserable for the rest of my life. But today you've realized that's, that's not what it's about. Following Jesus is not about rules and demands. 
It's about you living the life that God created you to live. It's about putting your faith in a savior who wants to welcome you into God's family and into God's eternal kingdom. And so here's the invitation today. If you're tired and you'd be willing to say, James, I I need rest, spiritual rest. Here's the invitation. In a moment when we stand, I wanna invite you to come down to the front to meet our prayer team here. You can get on your knees if you want. You can just come and grab their hand, but we wanna pray for you. My desire is that prayer in moments like this in our church would be the norm, not the exception. That we wouldn't only call on God when we need something from him, but we'd call on God on a regular basis just to change us, to speak to us, to transform us, to give us rest. And so again, for the believer in the room who lived the life that I lived, you know Jesus, but you're still working. Come and find rest today. For the non-believer in the room, the person who needs new life, needs hope for their future, needs spiritual rest, needs the love and acceptance of God, come and find rest today in Jesus. God, I'm praying that in the next few moments you would move in power in this place. God, would you unleash your Holy Spirit in this room? God, give us revelation. Speak to our hearts. Make known to us things that only you can make known. And God, give us courage and boldness to take the step we need to take today. God, would you just remove distractions, remove the enemy from this room. God, whatever is standing in the way of us finding rest in Jesus, God, we pray that it would be cast out in his name. God, we love you. And we pray this in Jesus' name.